We are in uh, Mark chapter 11. This is uh, one of my favorite set of verses of Jesus' ministry to talk about because uh, Jesus, he now he is going to begin being confronted on the Temple Mount by the religious leaders. A lot of times we call them the religious leaders, but we've got to remember that put this in the category of these are the elite. Uh, it's not like you've got, it's not like a bunch of local pastors. Uh, these are the governmental leaders. These are the, the Sanhedrin. They have court cases that they hear and make decisions for the nation. These are the priesthood. In fact, it's the chief priests are involved. They are the ones that control uh, the temple, control all the proceedings going around, including a money flow in and out. Uh, they are the priests a part of them are the Sadducees, which is now we got two religious groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that are polar opposites, but they're going to be coming against Jesus. But then you're going to have the Pharisees who are anti-Rome, siding with the Herodians who are pro-Rome. The Herodians like the Herodian line, and they support that. They're all Jews, but it's like all Americans, but we've got different political, religious views, and we break off into different camps. What's unique is like at this time right here, all these camps are going to unite. And again, the, the Pharisees are anti-Rome. The Herodians are pro-Rome, but they're going to come together and attack Jesus. You're going to have the, the priests and the Sanhedrin and the elders all coming to attack Jesus because they've got now a common enemy. And then you're going to have a distinction in this whole detention besides just having these, these elites and these different groups, if it be religious or political. You're then going to put the elites over here, and the elites are going to be concerned about the people, the masses, who were, were shouting just a couple days ago, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're waving palm branches, and the elite are standing like, hmm, this is getting out of control. We've got a certain amount of power and control, but if the masses revolt against us, it's like having a middle school assembly and having 400 kids sitting in the bleachers, and you've got a microphone, and you're talking to them, and you realize, hey, I'm in charge. Yeah, as long as they sit there, but the minute they all stand up and storm the podium... Uh, 400 middle school kids just took over the middle school. Now, don't let the middle school kids know this because if they wanted to, they could just stand up and at any time just run wild to the school and what are the teachers going to do? And so anyway, that's kind of like they're the, the elites are like this. Uh, I've never been an elite, but I have been a, a public school teacher that have looked at the crowd and realized, hey, I'm in charge as long as you believe it because <laughs> once you decide I'm not in charge, uh, there's not a thing I can do about it. And that's what these guys, the elite, are starting to look at the crowd and realize, and Jesus, is, you're going to see him here tonight, he's just, he's like stringing the needle, he's shooting the arrow, he's going right down the middle and just playing all, everybody against each other without being political. He's just being truthful. Uh, and, and again, we'll point several of those things out. So let's go ahead. I don't have it written out in the English Standard Version. I've got it in the, obviously, my Bible, the NIV. I've got some notes there we'll go through. Um, but I, I want to begin reading this. And I have a tendency to want to read, and I suppose we should because we're teaching the Bible, just read the text and let you hear the text. Um, and I'll try. I'll try just to read and not comment. And then we'll come back and make some comments. And we'll try to go from 1127 to 1237. You see, that's a lot of verses. If you look on your notes right here, you're going to see this, the first part, chapter 11, verse 27 through 23. It's going to be basically the Sanhedrin challenging Jesus' authority. And they're going to come and say, what, what authority are you doing right here? Who, who, who gives you permission to act this way? And then he's going to ask them a question, which it would be a, a debate technique. Oh, okay, I'll answer, but first answer this. And they're going to realize, yeah, we, we, we can't answer that question. We're going to lose control. And Jesus says, okay, well, I'm in the same position you are. So we're not going to answer each other's questions. Then we're going to go to chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And Jesus now, interestingly, remember earlier in Mark, he told parables so that hearing they would not hear, seeing they would not see. He told them right in their face, told them the truth, and you don't understand it. And that's, that's the Now, those who had could hear. Those who were believers had insight. They understood what he's saying. But those who did not, I have no idea what you're talking about. Exactly, so go your way. Here, the parables are going to, you're going to see very clearly, he's going to tell them a parable 
and they're going to understand. In other words, right here in chapter 12, he begins to unveil that he's the Messiah. And it, as he begins to tell the parable, it's a parable that's going to start showing them exactly what they're looking at, and they're going to realize what they're looking at and realize, once again, there's not a thing we can do about it. But they know that he's revealed who he is. Chapter 12, verse 13 through 17, the Herodians and the Pharisees, the two different groups, are going to come together. They're going to, that's where we have the coin. In fact, I've got some Roman coins here we'll pass around. These are some coins. These are not the actual coins, but there's some Roman emperors on these. I've got different dates on these. These are just fun. They're, they're authentic. They're original. They're actually from the first century or before, a little bit after. Um, anyway, they're going to they're bring him. One's a supporter of Rome. One's against Rome, and they want Jesus to make a decision. Because if he sides with this, this group's against him. If he sides with this group, this group's against him. And they're going to, Jesus, you've got to choose one or the other. And Jesus, so how do you say that? Threads the needle right down the middle. And they end up like, ah. And Jesus comes out amazing the crowd. And the word used where they were amazed listening to him is, this, is a word that it, it means uh, they delighted. They like, it'd be like, uh, you could use it for like listening to music or listening to a, a debate or listening to someone talk or listen to someone say words that you like. It was just like, like ooh, wow, they just liked listening to him talk. It was like excellent. And that's the word. They were amazed. And the, the, the leadership, the elites are like, I mean, he's, he's winning the crowd. He's winning the crowd over, not just with his personality, but with the truth. Uh, and then we probably won't get there this far, but then chapter 12, verse 18 through 27, the Sadducees come at him and a question about the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees are the, what we'd call the scriptural liberals of the day. Uh, they reject all the prophets. They reject uh, the Psalms. They accepted the first five books, and they did not believe in the supernatural. They were liberals, materialists, if you want to really dumb it down. They were liberals uh, in the, in the, uh, regarding the scriptures, and they were materialistic. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection or the afterlife. You live, you die, you're done. They were you know, almost like secular humanists, again, if we could dumb it down. And they're going to challenge Jesus because they think, aha, we've got scripture on our side, and Jesus is going to go right back to the book of Exodus and quote a verse out of Exodus to prove the resurrection. And no one could see this coming. It's, it's an amazing job of exegetical work. Of You've only got these five books. Can you prove the resurrection? Yeah, I can prove it by the tense of the verb that God used when he spoke. And there, it's like they didn't see it coming. I mean, he's using their own scriptures. Um, and that's the Sadducees and the resurrection. Now remember, the Sadducees are opposite the Pharisees. The Pharisees accept the whole text of the Old Testament. They believe in a resurrection, especially since Daniel speaks of, in the end, the resurrection, some to be everlasting glory and some to judgment or shame. Uh, so Jesus here is going to line up with the Pharisees' theology against the Sadducees. So, I mean, you know, you know, there is an alignment there, which is interesting. Not that Jesus was a Pharisee, but he does line up with their 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 doctrine uh then the scribe is going to ask about the greatest commandment and then jesus again we won't get there tonight i don't think jesus before the crowd leaves he says hey i, I i've got a question for you leaders he said I, i've got a verse i want you to explain to me and the verse is basically pointing right at him saying he's the messiah and he says can you explain this and they like no no and they're not no we don't want to explain that because they would have to just say if they're honest, the scriptures indicate you're the Messiah. And it's like, yeah, no, we don't know what that means. So they're uh, actually going to be exposing their hypocrisy by saying they can't answer questions. Maybe you can imagine someone being on trial or a, a, a hearing in front of Congress and then being drilled with questions, and all they can say is, I don't know, I don't remember, I can't answer that. Because if you did answer it, you would expose your involvement, your guilt. And that's where they're at. Jesus asks them a question. They've got to say, I don't know. I don't recall. I don't remember. It's like, right. Because if you did remember or recall or would answer, you'd be wrong. All right, here we go. Chapter 11, verse 27. Now remember, this is just after Jesus has uh, cleared the temple and then had cursed the fig tree on the way into town, and the next morning the fig tree had withered, which is a type of Israel. Uh, now he's in, he's in there on 
Tuesday. They've, they've walked by the fig tree that's been cursed on and been dead on Tuesday morning from the roots up. It, it withered from the roots up. Uh, and now chapter on Tuesday on the Temple Mount, they arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, again, just walking, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, that would be a summary, those are three groups that make up the Sanhedrin, came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, they don't have, they don't have the answer. It's like, uh, time out, huddle up. <laughs> it's like, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe? But if we say from men, now it's, it's great, it's right there in the text. See, it's, a, it's a, a third class condition, if this is the condition. But the next one, but if we say from men, they don't even give the, the, the they don't even give the answer. If we say from men, yeah, they're all kind of like kind of looking annoying. You know what's going to happen. Be, uh, then there's a parenthesis. They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, uh, "We don't know. We do not recall." Jesus says, "Neither do I tell you what authority I am doing these things." Jesus answered, "Well, then neither do I recall." Neither do I remember. Nah, neither do I know. I ain't going to tell you either. And which, again, revealed their hypocrisy. Chapter 12, verse 1. Again, it just continues. This is all, this is all one day in the Temple Mount, and he's just walking. He then began to speak to them in parables. Uh, again, this begins uh, in a parable. Could, it's just one parable, but he begins speaking to them and again to reveal. He says, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. So it's a very wealthy man. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers. And these farmers would probably be some kind of a corporate, not just poor people, but they'd be some kind of corporation that's going to manage the vineyard. He's going to go away. A lot of times people lived in other countries and had property in, in, uh, in Israel. Josephus did. He was granted some farmland in Israel while he was in Rome by the emperor, and then he would have someone run his property and send him profits from his his farm so that's what's taking place here at harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard but they seized him beat him and sent him away empty-handed then he sent another servant to them and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully he sent still another and that one they killed he sent many others Again, this whole story gets ridiculous. Uh, one, in the way the, the tenants are not paying their rent, and the way the man just keeps sending people to die in the vineyard. Some of them, he sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved, which you would say, well, don't send him. He sent him, last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Again, this is, this is, this is a, this is, it's one of those things where you, if you let yourself, okay, that makes sense. No, this is not supposed to make sense. The tenants are ridiculous. They, they won't pay their rent, uh, and they keep killing people. And the, and, the, and the owner just keeps sending people to their death. It's like, it's totally ridiculous. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, Jesus says to that, ask the, the, the elites, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? Now, here's a, this is now the revelation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And I'll go back and look at it. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, meaning it wasn't hidden from them. They knew what he was talking about. But they were afraid of the crowd. The elites were afraid of the masses. So they left him and went away. Now, again, there's a message to all of that, what's going on in our culture, the elites and the masses. They've got to divide the masses 
uh, imp uh, weaken the, the masses, take away any kind of power they've got. Otherwise, if the masses just say, that's enough, especially the, the vote, the vote, they're going to have to nullify, water down, neutralize the vote of the masses and make it just a ritual of, of meaninglessness for the elites to maintain control. Because if the votes are debbied out fairly and equally, the masses are going to throw out the elites. It always will. I mean, it always will because the elites get very, very selfish and use the masses for themselves. So that's what's, happen that's what's happening right here. The elites know they've got to somehow manipulate the masses. So if you're, if you're an elite, do not manipulate the masses. Treat them fairly. If you're the masses, you're being manipulated. No, okay. Uh, that's not exactly in the text, but you can make some application. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians, two opposite sides, to Jesus to catch him in his words. It's a trap. That word actually means trap. They came to him and said, Teacher, now watch it. This is, they, they're liars. Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Within there is a, a phrase that means you don't look people in the face. Because when you talk to people, you look them in the face, you kind of read them and how they're responding, and you adjust your words. But he doesn't, he, he just doesn't look, he just tells you the truth. Now, just opposite the way the, the religious elites are answering, they're looking everybody in the face, looking each other in the face, analyzing, uh, trying to say what will not get them in trouble. They say, Jesus, you're not like that. You're not a hypocrite. And they say, so, you know, just go ahead and just lay it on the line. Just t hit us with the truth. Again, it's a trap. So you hit us with the truth, and we'll take you this way and arrest you, or we'll take you this way and arrest you. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Well, if he says no, he's an insurrectionist. If he says yes, the crowds are going to be against because this was the result of a revolt in 6 AD, and it's going to be the res what's going to re uh, cause the zealots are going to pick up the same, same, same theme for the Jewish re revolt in 66 AD. So it's a lose-lose situation. But this is where Jesus is going to just thread the needle. But Jesus knew the hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And I'll show you some of these here in a moment. Uh, let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? And I'll read you in the inscription because we know what coin they're looking at. Caesar's, they replied, and I'll tell you what it says. Basically, it says that Caesar was God and it's on the Temple Mount in the hands of the elites. He said, well, whose inscription is it? Caesar's. And what's the inscription say? It's like, guys, he says, uh, uh, then Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And that can be decided in two different ways. If it means it, there's a ranks and authority or everything is God's and nothing is Caesar's. So you could go either way with that. Uh, then the Sadducees. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, this is nonstop debate from different groups. Jesus is debating the entire religious systems and the different political parties and political factions uh, on the Temple Mount. And they're just hitting him up. They're trying to trap him, trying to turn the crowd against him. Then the Sadducees, who are opposite the Pharisees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. And that is the law, if, you know, and you understand that if, if there's a man married to a, wo a woman and he dies and she's barren and has no children, then she's like destitute. So the brother has to marry her, produce children for her, that she's now got a family to provide for. And then he'd have to take care of the wife. Okay. Must, that's, that's why you got to be real picky who your brother marries, just, just in case this happens. It's like, no, I don't think you should marry her. It's like, here's a good one. Uh, anyway, leaves his wife but no children. The man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. Want to hear another ridiculous story? There were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. So the second one married the widow but also died leaving no children. It was the same way the third, in fact, none of the seven left any children. It's like, okay, what is she feeding her husband? It's like, what is going on here? 
I mean, it's just, again, it's a ridiculous story. So he's got seven brothers. They're all dead, and the wife still has no children. I mean, this is a, this is a, 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 a should be on some kind of a, a TV show or, you know, when I think Oprah or somebody like that, some story. Last of all, the, women, the woman died too, of course. At the resurrection, which they do not believe in, uh, whose wife will she be? since the seven were all married to her. In other words, what they're pointing out is how ridiculous the concept of a resurrection. Everyone's going to live together somewhere else. Okay, if that's the case, and we actually apply the law of Moses, these seven guys are going to be standing at the gate of heaven, and, and she finally dies. It's, honey, you're home. Honey, you're home. Honey, I've been waiting. It's like, whoa, now she's got seven husbands, and now that's a violation of the law itself. So that proves in their little, you know, straw man arguments that proves we're right there's no resurrection now watch uh, jesus answer love jesus answer jesus replied are you not in error meaning you're wrong and he tells you why because you do not know the scriptures or the power of god meaning you are totally ignorant of the text and you're ignorant of what god is doing so in other words, he just flat out, the Sadducees, are just, they're basically, in Jesus' eyes, at least in this situation, your doc, total doctrine is way off. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about, and again, there's, I'll have to come, there's two things that are not said there that people say is said there. One, it does not say, okay, 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 do I want to even open this up? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, there's no marriage in heaven or in eternity. So, that, that would be because marriage is of this age. They will be like the angels in heaven. So, because you go into eternity, one, you'll be like angels in heaven. That's your verse. People become angels when they go to heaven. No, you'll be like angels, not having marriage. You won't be producing children anymore. That's, that marriage is over. You know, you'll recognize each other. We've talked about, what will we, what, yeah, I remember you, my wife. It's like, but they'll be like, not that they'll be angels, but they'll be in the same dimension as angels, which also then plays out. See, the angel says right here, the angels can't have sex. The angels cannot produce the Nephilim. See, you cannot have the sons of the angels on earth because right here, Jesus says, angels can't have sex or angels can't produce. No, that's not what it says. You see, that would be implicit. There's explicit, clearly says this. Implicit is what you think it's applying if that's true, but it's implied. It's not there. It, it, so, again, it, this, does not, this does not nullify the... Now, again, if you're talking about Genesis chapter 6 and the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had descendants by them or offspring and they became the heroes of old which of which legends are written about the Nephilim were on the earth in those days uh, we can explain that very clearly of some the and angels infiltrating the human race polluting the human seed the seed of the woman that was going to produce the Messiah that would save mankind out of the grips of, of Satan and the, and the fallen angels, uh, they, they were born and then God wiped them out. And they said, well, and that makes sense to me. I think that's what the text says. But you're going to have to argue against someone who's going to say, right here, you can't do that because it, it says this. Now, about the dead, Jesus says, about the dead rising. Now, again, this is a great verse. Here's your resurrection verse. Where in the Old Testament does it talk about the resurrection? But wait, where does it talk about the resurrection in the first five books? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Where's your resurrection verse? Well, here, this is Jesus. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, the Exodus, in the account of the bush, where Moses approaches the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Yeah, well... He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, you understand what you can imagine reading that, and I had for years when I was much younger. It's like, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What? 
because, the, again, I'm teaching this, Moses, of course, I'm going to say he lived in 1400 B.C., 1440, we'll say, if you want to write 1440, live before that, B.C., he's talking to God, and God says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. He was not saying, I was. Because Abraham, 2000 B.C., going down, let's say, to 1800 B.C., Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, if they lived right here, and God is speaking, he would be saying, back in the day, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob followed me. I was their God. You should be, I should be your God. But he was talking in 1400, 1440 B.C., or right around that time, saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's not talking about am back there, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still with him, and I still am their God. And so Jesus is taking an entire word, the tense of the ver verb, and building it, uh, the doctrine of the resurrection, on the, not just the word, but the tense of a verb, uh, and he's happy with it. I mean, that, that, that's, just, that's just an example of Jesus exegeting Scripture and eliminating the, the Sadducees' entire argument, there is no resurrection. Uh, God says, I am, in 1400 B.C., about guys who live in 2000 B.C. He still was their God. It's like, next question, please. And they're like, ah, which again is, is brilliant. You can imagine uh, Jesus teaching Bible. That would be, you, it's like, my, you know, all of our questions that are complicated, you know, ah, no one really knows the answer. You got all your little theological groups. Jesus just went in and say, boom, read a verse, explain it. It's like, they're, oh, okay. And they all go to one side. And I'm looking forward to that day. I really am. Including where I'm wrong. It's like when Jesus says, okay, well, here's this verse. It's like, there it is. Okay, I, I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I now join this side. I mean, because I'm all over the map and different, trying to figure out what is right, what is wrong, or what is true in different situations, but, you know, it'd be nice to have that kind of teaching. Anyway, you're badly mistaken, and someday he may say that to me. You are badly mistaken. He may be saying it right now. I just can't hear him. Okay. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, again, this guy, is this guy in, in, is sincere, or is he now trying to take Jesus down by himself? So it doesn't say who the, he's a teacher of the law, uh, so it may be a Pharisee, maybe uh, you know one of the scribes. See, he asked him a, a question, and Jesus is positive with him. Of all the commandments, he asked Jesus, which is the most important? Now, is that a trap? It doesn't say it was a trap. It's just, I mean, you just got. It's like this guy's like, okay, hey, I've always wondered. We got all these laws. Which one is the top, the priority? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this: Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Excuse me, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he says, and for a bonus, the second is love your neighbor as yourself. These are, okay, there are no commandment greater than these. Love the Lord your God with all yourself, all your being, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you can do that, you're 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 fulfilling the law the teacher says well said teacher the man replied you are right in saying that god is one and there's no other but him to love him with all your heart with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your okay that would be what we talked about on on sunday pure when you are pure of heart meaning you are your whole you're single-minded not, not just pure like you're sinless, but you're single-minded. You're pure in your direction. You're not double-minded. So he, he, this guy's saying right here, to, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength. That would be another way of saying pure. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than, watch this, than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. And this guy is saying this in the midst of Sadducees, in the midst of the priest on the temple mount while people are making sacrifice he says all your focus is on god and to love your neighbor as you love yourself he said that's more important than all the burnt sacrifices and then jesus says when jesus saw that he had answered wisely he said to him you are not far from the kingdom of god meaning you've you've given up on this you're looking at pursuing god and right there if you're seeking him 
you will find him. That, that's, that's the answer. If people say, I'm seeking God, it's like, well, the answer would be, or the response, good, you will find him. If you seek God, you'll find him. That's, that's one of the solid promises of the Bible. If you seek me, you will find me. I just can't find God. <laughs> well, then the Bible says, well, you're not seeking him. Well, I really am. No, you're really not, because God is looking for you while you're looking for him. You draw near to God, James says, he'll draw near to you. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, that's not a promise, as I read it here, but it is an indication that you just, just keep your, don't turn back. Don't turn back. You're going to see this. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. But I got to read one more. So everybody's done, but then Jesus said, well, wait, wait, wait. Can I ask you guys a question? Before all you leaders walk away, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, these teachers, they say the Messiah is going to be a son of David. Yes, yes. Everybody would nod their head in agreement. But David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, I mean, that's where Jesus, he's going to quote a psalm, so this is in the text of Scripture, so David was inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, The Lord, God, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. But that's God speaking, Yahweh speaking to the son of David, one of his sons, to sit on the throne of Israel until his enemies are defeated. So, well, he says, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So the, the Christ is the son of David, yes. But David, in speaking about the Christ who's going to sit on the throne, or talking about the son who's going to sit on the throne, calls him Lord. So David's son is called Lord by David. So David's calling his son the Messiah. And you agree David's son is the Christ. Explain that to me. And they're like, the large crowd listened to him with, there it is, with delight. That'd be like, that'd be like at a, a, a music concert. Or that'd be like at listening to a debate. Or listening to someone tell a story. It's like, you know, you've heard people tell stories. I'll just say, oh, tell another story. Like, I love being with, like, like little kids. Tell me another story. Tell me another story. Oh, let me tell you another. And, they, and it's like, oh, they're just infatuated with you. So it's like, oh, I see, so powerful. Well, they were listening to him with delight as they're listening to him right there. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teacher of the law. And he goes on and warns them about that. Well, that is this text of Scripture that we're looking at tonight. Uh, these verses right there, a lot of verses, but I kind of want to put that together in a package. This, again, is Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' ministry. He came in on Sunday, came to the Temple Mount on Monday, and then is back on Tuesday. He's going to be... If we go with a Friday crucifixion, he'll be on the cross by Friday. So here we go. Uh, going way back to the beginning, chapter 11, verse 27 through 33, the chief priest describes the elders, challenge Jesus' authority. And I'll read through that very quickly here one more time and make some comments about it. I, I didn't do it. I, I may start talking. They arrived in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Again, that's the Sanhedrin. There's 70 members in that Sanhedrin, so there would be at most 70 people if we're talking about the Sanhedrin, but they would be from that group. Uh, By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do it? So they're saying, you come in here, and they're asking his authority. Who authority? Who gave you this authority? You come in here, and what these things, these things. What things did he do? One, a royal entry. He came in a couple days ago like he was a king, on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah. They're saying psalms that only are said to David's sons when they ascend the throne. Uh, You have a royal entry on Sunday, and then you come back on Monday, and you turn the tables over. I mean, you cleared the temple. You came in like, and you says, my house will be a house of prayer. And he was talking about the, the court of the Gentiles had been taken over by selling the, the, the sacrifice and selling things and making profit on the temple mount when the Gentiles couldn't even get in to pray or worship and get as close as they could to God because their court had been overtaken by the Jews selling stuff to other Jews to take into the temple. So a, they turned the court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus turned those tables. He says, 
This is supposed to be a, a house of prayer for the Gentiles, and you've turned into a den of thieves, quoting both Isaiah and Jeremiah on the Temple Mount. And so, and he turns the so by what authority, who sent you here to do these things? You come in like a king, and then you come up and clean the temple like you're in charge. And uh, the answer is, uh, I'm the Christ, and God the Father has sent me. Now, if he says that, he is in trouble because uh, he'll be executed. One, he's an ins- Christ. Remember the whole title Messiah? He's been staying away from the title Messiah because when they think of Messiah, they think of the son of David coming and overthrowing the Romans. And so he, he's, not gonna, he's been avoiding the concept of the Messiah. Now, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, but he's not there to overthrow Rome. But that's what they would understand. So if he says, I'm the Christ God sent me, well, that's going to be an insurrection. If he comes and says, I'm a Christ and I've I've been sent here, he could be identified as a false prophet. And so Jesus answering that question, either way he answers that question, he's either coming against the Jews or the Romans, and he's going to be executed because of the answer. So he says, as, as we know, what authority are you doing these things? Okay, so Jesus turns and Jesus answered, I will ask you one question. Now, if you'll answer my question, I'll answer this question. Not that he's not saying I can't, but you're going to find out why I'm not going to answer that question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. And so now, John, the thing about John's baptism, John the Baptist, uh, and when in John's baptism, when it says that, that just means his ministry and he baptized people for repentance. John's ministry was pointing towards Jesus. So besides, the baptism was for repentance. To Why were they repenting? To prepare people for the Lord. And then John introduces Jesus as the Lord that they were repenting to get ready to receive the Lord. So John's whole ministry was pointing towards Jesus. So Jesus says, okay, Let's start here. John's ministry. Do you say, yes, it's from God? And if they do, well then, here I am. You listen to John. I'm just doing what John said I was going to do. So get in line. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. If they say no, uh, well, (laughs) who is all these people repenting? There are people repenting because they believe John's message and they're getting ready for it. So there's a, a vast majority of people, even Josephus mentions John the Baptist. So he, he goes down his story. He had a mass of people that had joined the movement to repent and get ready for the Lord. So if they say, yes, we agree with John, Jesus says, well, welcome to the club. If they say, no, he wasn't sent from John, all the people that you represent are going to say, you don't represent us. And so you can see, in the, and you can see the very, in, in, the, in the answer right there, the question. If you look in the, the uh, um, oh yeah, yeah, point 29 and 30, in the Greek there, point 6. Uh, it's interesting because Jesus is very emphatic with the phrase, answer me. You, he, because he's going to use it twice. And you can see it ends, I get it in a square box. I'm going to read, not the Greek, but I'll read the literal translation from the Greek. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and, now he begins, you answer me. I only got to, you answer, or in a square. You answer me. And I will tell you by what authority these things I do. The baptism of John from heaven, was it? Or from man? Was it from heaven or was it from man? And then answer me. So it begins, answer me this question, and I'll tell you by what authority, John's baptism, yes or no, answer me. So even the Greek right there, he's being very emphatic. I mean, he's, he's in a sense using authority. I'll ask you a question about my authority. Answer me. Question, answer me. And here's their response, as you know. They didn't answer. They, they discussed it amongst themselves. And here's the process of them discussing. If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? When it says, why didn't you believe him? Meaning, why don't you believe in me? Because he says I was coming. 
Uh, but if we say from men, and like I said before, in the, when we were going through this, from men, they're like, if we say it's from heaven, he'll say, why, why didn't you believe him? If we say it's from men, meaning it's kind of like, if we say it from men, you know it's going to happen. And they're like, mm-hmm, we can't say, we can't answer this question because we either saying we should follow you or we're going we're to have a revolt on our hands. And they've got to say, right here, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. Now, right there in a culture of, of, uh, of humiliation and I don't want to say pride, but of self-respect, to be asked the question, and, in, and, and again, he's not asking them, like when I, I deal with those guys on the, on the web hosting, and I, 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 they ask me a question, it's like, I don't know, I, I just upload stuff. I just, I know this much, and you're, I don't know, I didn't, don't have a computer degree. I don't know. I'm saying, well, they really showed you. No, that's why I pay them money to host my website. What is embarrassing was I asked them a question. They go, we don't know what's wrong. Okay, now you're humiliated. You can't humiliate me with a computer question because I don't know. These guys were the elites. They're the ones who knew God's will. And the people came to the priests, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. They're the leaders because you know. Jesus says, well, okay. You're, you know? Okay. John, was he from heaven or just from men? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> you don't know. You can't evaluate John the Baptist's ministry? We don't know. <laughs> well, then, you're not going to evaluate my ministry. It's basically, then shut up. It's like, what about John? We, we, can't, we can't evaluate that. Oh, but you're here to evaluate me. No. I'm not going to answer your question. And he says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a parable. God put some people in charge of a vineyard, and now we go to this parable, and they're going to realize right here, they are the ones in charge of the vineyard that God is building, and they're plundering it. And uh, what's going to happen? That, now, that leads right into this next story, and they, they know exactly. And so it ends at chapter 11, and so it ends with verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we don't know, which is a totally humiliating answer. They look, if they look like fools on the Temple Mount. They're, they're in their area, in their arena, and they've got to say, we don't know. You have a question that we can't answer. And everyone in the crowd is like, say it's from God. Say it's from, it's, he's a prophet from God. Everybody's like, mm-hmm, go yes. They go, well, we don't know. What kind of leadership do we have? And then Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Since you can't evaluate John, I'm not going to pay attention to your evaluation. Chapter 12. He then began, right after that, he spins into this parable to speak to them about, uh, in parables. And we, went, we already read through it. Uh, the, the vineyard, and again, it becomes ridiculous. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Uh, then he rented the vineyard to some farmers. And this would be some kind of business people that are going to take care of the vineyard for him. And he's prepared this vineyard. Now, one, some insight in this possibly is the four-year period that it would take four years. If you, if you plant a vineyard, you get the press ready, uh, did all these things. And I got some pictures of wine presses and things uh, online that, that are, you can see. Uh, I'd like to go down that road, but we're going to not. Uh, but a four-year period, and then they'd have a crop of wine. It'd take about that many years. But also, one commentator says there was a law, if this makes sense, within Jewish culture. If you are renting, or we can say living somewhere, and you live somewhere for four years, but you don't pay any rent, you just live there. It's almost like uh, uh, possession is like nine-tenths of the law. You know, you know, you heard that before. It's like if you can live somewhere for four years and not pay anybody rent, it's yours. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't belong to anybody else. And someone can come and say, well, that's my property. Well, where have you been for the last four years? It's like I've been living here for four years. Uh, and and that, that is one commentator said that. And so the idea here could be, as it kind of makes sense out of this, if they can go four years without paying rent, just keep killing everybody that comes to collect the rent, they could say, according to this law, and that's not, that's not explicit in the text, okay? This, I'm making an implicit statement. You know, just like I talked about you know, before, explicit is what is clearly said. 
implicit is, and that would be implicit. It may give some insight into that. But nonetheless, uh, they do all this. And again, you can see the guy took a lot of time preparing for the harvest. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Basically, he's there to collect the rent. You, you, can, you, can, have pro, you can have the profits, but I also want part of the profits. That's, he's collecting the rent. He's coming for the rent payment. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. No rent payment. We're not paying rent this year. Then he sent another servant to them. Now, if this is a second year or just you know the next week, uh, they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and this one they killed. So that'd be three years if you're going to go one every year. And it doesn't say that explicitly. He sent many others. And again, now, now we're getting into, if you want to make the uh, uh, application, this is not just one or two or three prophets. This is like many prophets over the years, including John and Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God, but he also served as a prophet. Uh, and, they, and they killed them and sent them away, beat others. Uh, he then had one left to send a son, which would clearly be Jesus, whom he loved. And when he says whom he loved, ties into when Jesus, be, the book of Mark began, this is my beloved son whom I love. At the transfiguration, this is my beloved son whom I love. Goes back to Abraham. Uh, God says, take your son that you love. All, that's the same phrase. Uh, the one he sent, whom a son that he loved, he sent him last of all saying, they all respect my son. Now the, the ridiculousness of this, this, this uh, parable is how arrogant the tenants are, that they just continue to kill people from the owner. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? A, apart from this four-year law, uh, what do you think is going to happen? That is, you can say, well, just give up, and that we just have this. You can just fight him for the... I mean, he, he clearly planted the crop, built the wine press, got everything ready, put a watchtower up to protect it. So he's, he's clearly invested in this. And then you, when he comes to collect, you start beating up all of his servants, and now his son comes. And they decide. Uh, but the tenants said to one another, we got a great idea. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So by killing the son, these criminals will get the inheritance? I mean, that's ridiculous. How does that even make sense? Unless you try to make some kind of connection, if Satan can overthrow the Son of God, then he'll inherit the earth for himself. You know, but that's, again, we're stretching that. So they took him and killed him and threw him out into the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, again, in the other Gospels, Jesus asked the crowd the question, and they give him the answer. Well, he'll, he'll, he'll slay him. And Jesus is right here. He'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, if this is the case, uh, if we look on the notes right here, turn to page two at the top. Point three on the second page, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. I'll go read that verse for you. Uh, Israel is the vineyard. Now, this is uh, around 700 B.C. And Israel and Judah are not being obedient uh, and God is going to send the prophet Isaiah. I, I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 5. Um, and this, uh, what I'm going to show you here is very clearly, again, I would say explicitly, if we were, since we're using those terms tonight, um, the vineyard in these parables, just like the fig tree in some occasions, represents judah or jerusalem or israel god planted a vineyard it was israel he planted a vineyard uh it was judah in 700 bc israel judah again israel fell in 722 so depending on when isaiah was saying this but uh if it's 700 bc he's talking in hezekiah's day to the people of jerusalem here it is isaiah chapter 5 Verse 1, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. So the one they're singing about has a vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. I can imagine that this is a song. This, these are lyrics. Now, again, I don't know the song. I'm not going to embarrass myself or entertain you by trying to sing it. But you can imagine this would be a, a, some kind of a rhythmic song. It would appear, especially since he used the word song, about uh, his vineyard. 
My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. So far, it sounds exactly like Jesus' parable. So you've got to think Jesus is basically quoting this or referring to this. He built a watchtower, as did the owner here, in it and cut out a wine press as well. So far, we're right in step with Jesus' parable. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. Now, in this case, he didn't rent it out. He's taking care of it himself. He looked for a good crop of grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Meaning, I, I planted it, I cared for it, I tended it, and I have no fruit. Now, you guys be the judge. And Jesus said in the other Gospels, he says, you, Joe, what will happen to these tenants? Here, Isaiah says, what will happen to the vineyard? What more could have been done? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. This is 700s right here. Isaiah is talking to Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. I will tell you what will happen uh, to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. The briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, and the garden of his delight, or are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteous, but heard cries of distress." And then goes on and talks about that. So we got a very clear connection there uh, in Mark chapter 11, going back to Isaiah chapter 5, obviously. In, in Isaiah's case, the vineyard was going to be judged. The wall was going to be taken down. and It was going to be overrun and trampled. In Jesus' parable, of very similar, what was going to be judged was going to be the tenants, those that had been left in charge of the vineyard or had been left in charge of Jerusalem or Judah. Uh, and that's exactly who Jesus is talking to. They're on the Temple Mount, just, just got done questioning him. By what authority do you do these things? The elite, the leaders, the, those that had been, the vineyard had been rented out to, are executing, rejecting the prophets like John, are rejecting Jesus. In fact, they're going to kill the son. And what's going to happen to the elite? Now, in, in Isaiah, what's going to happen to Israel or Judah? In, G in Jesus' parable, what's going to happen to the elite or the leadership? They're going to be eliminated. Uh, now, of course, it's going to result ultimately in the destruction of Judah, but that's, that's in that parable. Um, now, we're not done with this parable. Uh, what then will happen? Uh, it says to the others, uh, it'll be given away to others. And again, given away to others, you've got to decide who it will be given to because the vineyard is still going to go somewhere if it be Judah, or now if it becomes the purpose of God, the plan of God, the word of God, what God's you know, building, uh, now it translates into the church. Now this will, this will help you. We're, we're, it'll be given to someone else. Is it now given to the Gentiles, or to the church? Uh, haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus says? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now I referred to that last week uh, or somewhere. Uh, you're cutting stones in a quarry to put into a building like a temple, but you come to a stone and you start cutting it out and it has a little crack in it. Uh, you just leave it, go on to the next one. Or you cut away the good stone, eventually you get to a stone that's not as, as firm, not as good. Uh, it splits, it doesn't break easy. You just leave it and you've exhausted the quarry, you just go away. Well, in this case, they, the builders cut out a stone but go, yeah. We're not going to use, this stone does not fit the building we're, we're, we're working on. It doesn't match. It's not of the right strength. We don't like this stone for some reason. Well, it's become the capstone. Now, this word capstone can be cornerstone, foundation stone. It can be the capstone in the building, the decorative piece. It can be like in an arch, that middle piece that goes into an arch, the, 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 the keystone. It can be any of those things. Most likely, this is probably referring to the, the foundation stone, the cornerstone of what the building is set, and you set that first stone square and build everything off that square stone, and the building is square and proportionally right. But the, this stone had been rejected by the builders. The builders, the elite, reject the stone. 
but it's become the capstone or the cornerstone. And the, if it's a cornerstone, understand, a cornerstone means a new building. Now, if it's a capstone, which it could be, it'd be like one of the final stones put on. Everything's been built. It's the capstone. It's the most pretty stone. If it's a new building, it would be the cornerstone, the foundation stone. It's the, it's the stone on the, which the whole building is established. Now, I, I think cornerstone would fit this better. Again, we're talking here. But in this setting, on the Temple Mound, the elite are being eliminated, and the stone that they are rejecting is going to become the cornerstone for a brand new building. In other words, you're, you're destroying this, and what you're rejecting is going to be the cornerstone for a brand new work. that God is going to give this. Where is he going to give it to? To this new building. We're coming over here. And now you've got, if we'd say, the church built on Jesus Christ. Um, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And now I want to go to Psalm 118, please. We've got to finish this. And this is interesting. Because one Psalm 118, and it's interesting how Jesus ties this all together and this is a good place to quit if i can do it here quickly psalm 118 is a hallel psalm recited at passover so everyone knew this psalm i mean first of all they're jews uh, but also this was a song they sang every passover this psalm psalm 118 um i'm going to begin in a verse okay i'll begin in verse 19 psalm 118 verse 19 now um, let's see how this goes uh, Psalm 118 verse 19 open for me the gates of righteousness I will enter and give thanks to the Lord Yahweh this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter I will give you thanks for you answered me you have become my salvation verse 22 the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us, be, let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. Or, O Lord, Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For from the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With boughs in our branches in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I'll give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Now, they just got done quoting verse 25 and 26 on Sunday. Now, they're talking about the Lord entering the temple, going up to the altar for some sacrifice that never happened. Because he opened the gates. Here comes the Lord. They're waving palm branches, and the Lord is going to go into the temple, and there's going to be some kind of a sacrifice. But remember when he got there, what happened? He walked around, and we never did this. We never, we never, we just, uh, it says, with branches in hand, join in the festal procession. We're going somewhere up to the horns of the altar. It's like they're going up to make a sacrifice. And Jesus comes in, riding in, they're singing the right psalm. They're waving the right branches. He goes up on the Temple Mount, and they're like, and he went home. It's like nothing happened. Because right here, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. So they've already done this, but they didn't finish it. He goes back, why? Because right here, the elite that were supposed to recognize and join in the procession you know, it, we're here, this whole thing, we're building this country, we're building this nation, we're building this work of God. The elite, and we're going to kill everybody because we don't want to do this. He says, well, what? they're going to be destroyed. He says, now explain this to me. Have you not read? He says, have you not read? And it's like, yes, they have. Then have you not understood? The, the stone that you're rejecting is going to become the, the cornerstone. The Lord is doing this. I mean, and he goes back, by what authority? The Lord is doing this himself, and I'm just fulfilling it. And so that's, that's how far we've got here tonight. And uh, again, it's, it's a great set of verses. I've got some coins I'd like you to take a look at here. If you want to just, it's, it's, for me, it's fun to touch them because they're 
Here's got some inscriptions on it. Here, I can talk about this more later because we didn't get to this actually. Here's some here. Those are dated for different years. Yes, these are real. These are authentic. Yes, these are. There's some, you can see some inscriptions on them. Those are dated in there. But uh, I, will, I will pray, and then we can have a little coin fest here. Might lead to an offering or something. Who knows where this is going? <laughs> Father, we thank you for the chance to look into your word. We ask that we, again, would let it penetrate our hearts and change us into the image of Jesus Christ. We ask that we may have clarity and in any mistakes or errors that we've made in our understanding or interpretation. I do ask that you lead these people into the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your time.